in uh, Luke's Gospel this morning. In Luke's Gospel. And if, as before you actually turn there, let's open our bulletins for this. We'll read this, this uh, summons to the word together. The summons to the word is, is there to really to, to sober us, to, to focus our thoughts, to focus our minds, to, um, to, to, to be able to, 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 to discern the, the, the gravity of what we are about to do. And our, our summons to the word this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 4. Let's read it together. Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Amen. Again, um, our, our, our text is taken from Luke chapter uh, 1 this morning. Luke chapter 1. <clears throat> You'll find that on page 878 of your pew Bible. Page 878 if you want to follow along. I'm going to be reading from uh, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Again, that's page 878 in your pew Bible. As you read, as, we, as I read this passage aloud and as you read it with me, I would like you to focus on these two persons, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Uh, we, this Advent season, we've been walking through um, just the sense of expectation that we find in the Old Testament. First with the patriarchs, with Abraham, and Sarah, second with the prophets, uh, and, and, uh, with I, the prophet Isaiah, and now uh, this uh, third week of Advent, uh, we, we, we uh, tell the story of John the Baptist, and here I've chosen this particular section of, of the, uh, the announcement of John's birth for a particular reason, as we'll see here shortly. Uh, let's read these words together. Hear now the word of the living God, uh, taken from Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. And then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. 
Zechariah asked the angel, how, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. The word of the Lord. Again, as I mentioned, Advent is a time when we rehearse the story of Jesus' first coming. A story that, as we've seen, starts over 2,000 years before his birth. We saw that with Abraham and Sarah. You think about how can that be? How can it really be that, 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 that this story is so expansive? It starts so, so long before his birth. Well, Christianity, this is so important, Christianity insists that each and every one of us is an actor, not in their own individual episode, right? There's the Bruce show, there's the Sarah show, the Juan show, right? Each of us, we're just actors in these little shows that we have. Christianity contends that we, each and every one of us, are actors in one great epic. So we're not actors in an individual episode. We're actors in one large epic and we can see this. If you want to follow along, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Just keep your finger open there to Luke 1. If you've if you got a pew Bible, it's on page 1040. Hebrews 11 is this, what's called Hall of Faith, and it recounts the various Old Testament figures from, from really from Adam on down, and talks about just how the ways in which they exercised faith. And it's, it's in chapter 11, verse 13. Again, it's page 1040 if you want to follow along. It's uh, Hebrews 11, verse 13. But we get the sense of the expanse of the epic of this story, that it, it, it crosses millennia and cultures and languages and people of all different backgrounds. And we read in verse 13 of chapter 11, listen to this, it gives you a sense of the sweeping nature of the epic and the, the, the various characters who exercise faith. Listen to this, verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. Isn't that amazing? They knew they were in this story, this epic, and there was a promise, and they clung to that promise. They clung to a story that was bigger than they were. And they didn't see the fulfillment. They didn't receive. They didn't actually get what was promised them. Isn't that amazing? It continues here. They only saw them, they only saw the things promised, and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. They said, you know, this is not all there is. 
This isn't my home. This isn't, it's more, life is more than just work. It's more than just money. It's more than just whatever. There's more to life. And there's this story that has captured me. And it makes me an, an agent, an actor in an epic, in a uh, cross-century, cross-millennia story that, that belongs to Abraham and Sarah and Joseph and David and on through the line. And if you're going to understand Luke chapter 1, you have got to see Zechariah and Elizabeth as those who have wagered everything on this epic. They've waged everything. Because when you look at the story of, Abraham, of, of, of Zechariah and Elizabeth, the question that we should be asking, the question that Luke wants us to ask is this. Was it really worth it? I mean, when you look at Zechariah and Elizabeth, you just kind of think, really? Really? You're old? Look around you. Wake up. Wake up to the times. So you look in the, very first, in the very first verse there, in verse 5, um, it tells us, that, um, uh, Luke gives us the context. In the time of King Herod, of Herod, king of Judea. See, in Zechariah and Elizabeth's day, the king, the prince, was a complete fraud. The man, a man known to the history as Herod the Great, was good at doing, very good at doing two different things. You ready? He was incredibly good at constructing buildings, constructing entire cities. In fact, the temple itself in which Jesus worshipped was a temple constructed, or at least completed, by Herod the Great. And the other thing that Herod was really, really good at was killing people. So construction and killing. That's what he did, and he killed family, killed friends, killed foes. He was all of it. You cross him, it'll be the last thing you did. He killed infants. Right, we know the story from Matthew's Gospel. A ruthless man, he's on the throne, and just nothing but corrupt. You think our government today is corrupt. We don't begin to know what corruption looks like. Herod was a man, so, in, in, so look around you, Elizabeth, look around you, Zechariah, the princes of our day are just completely corrupt. And then look, look within the church, what about the priests of Zechariah's day? What were they like? Well, if you notice again in verse 5, it speaks of Zechariah, and it says that it refers to him as, as one who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. It mentions that because that division was actually a legitimate division. It was actually, he was actually a true descendant of Aaron, and Aaron was the line of the priesthood. And in that day, think about this, if, if you're the king, you're king, you're Herod, and you built the temple, who's going to be controlling the temple? Probably Herod. He did, and he appointed his own priests. The priests weren't even of the line of Aaron. They were completely corrupt. So here's, here's this guy, Zechariah, an old man, faithfully serving. He's doing what is righteous, that word righteous. You see that there in verse 6. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God. This idea of righteousness here is, is this notion of being aligned with God's ways. It's not about the sense of perfection. It's not what it's this notion of, of tra a trajectory that aligns itself with the mighty acts of God. We'll come back to that. But the question that should, should, just sort of, should stand out to us in Luke chapter 1 the very beginning, is like, is it really worth it? Zechariah, Elizabeth, what's the point? Do you, do you, ever, do you ever wonder that? Do you ever think, you know, is it really worth trying? Is it really worth trying to do the right thing? Think about your work situation. 
Think about just the, the chaos at work and just the, the bureaucracy and the mess. And you try and you think, is it really even worth trying? I can think of those of you who are kids. Um, my, my nephew, um, his name is Brandon, and he, this is, this is a number of years ago, like four or five years ago. He was in, he was in junior high and uh, he was in math class. And he realized that uh, some of the other classmates were, um, had this sort of scheme going on, and they were cheating. And it wasn't just a one-off thing. It was this ongoing thing that, that, that these guys were cheating. They're comparing notes or whatever it was. They had this successful way of, of, of uh, figuring out the answers and cheating on tests. And, they were, and the, the class was completely curved. And so everyone was losing out because these guys were, were cheating. And he, and he knew, I mean, he, they, he knew them, they knew him, and uh, he, he wondered, do, do I, what am I supposed to do here? What's the right thing to do? And he decided, he, first he confronted them on it, they denied it, and then he went, he went to the teacher. And you just wouldn't believe what happened there. They totally ostracized him. They got in trouble. The parents got involved. The parents said, oh, my Johnny would never, would never cheat on a test. They demonized, the, demonized Brandon. And, and we're talking to Brandon, and he said, you know, I just, I tried to do the right thing, and I'm wondering, was it worth it? Was it worth, is it worth it to do the right thing? Is it worth it to try? And, and I remember Brandon saying to me, he says, you know, I just felt so defeated. I felt so defeated. Again, about four or five years ago, I was uh, talking to a med student, a medical student, um, third year, third or fourth year, I think, med student, and he had been raised in a non-religious family. He came to me expressing an interest in Christianity. And he talked about how he had entered med school with this passionate desire to help others, you know, to make a difference. But as he continued in his studies, and he started, as he started to do the hands-on work of all the rotations, I mean, he was eager. He was even exhilarated at the opportunity of helping others. But he found himself swinging back and forth, though, between exhilaration, oh, this is so amazing, and just exhaustion. He found himself swinging between a deep desire to help and a deep discouragement over how unhelpful he seemed to be. He said to me, he said, you know, I could, be, I could try to be the best doctor in the world, and I don't feel like I would even make a dent. And then he, he continued, he said, what's hard too is sometimes, he said, sometimes I work with doctors or nurses who have become so hardened, so cynical, and it's like they're just going through the motions. He said, that just discourages me and it scares me because I feel like, why, why, am I just stupid? Am I just naive young med student who's trying to save the world? And he says, what scares me most is that I wonder in five or ten years, am I going to end up just like them? Cynical, bitter, hardened. And he was discouraged and he said, you know, I just felt, I felt so defeated, Right? And yet, it's what we see here, this picture of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Here they are, standing strong. And you wonder, should we, should we pity them? Have they just not gotten the memo? You know, or should, should we look down on them and just say, you know, they just, they're just naive? It's kind of pathetic. Here's this old couple thinking that they're going to make a different thing. You know, what, what, do they, what do they think? Again, look at verse 6. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But then here's the, here's the sucker punch. Look at verse 7. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Now, understand, in our culture today, like being married without kids, that could often be seen as like a really good thing, right? 
And there, there are days, there are days, there are days where I'm like, hmm, all right, you know what I mean? Are you familiar with the acronym DINKS, right? You know what DINKS are? Dual income, no kids, right? Dual income, no kids, all right. Sounds pretty great. See, but in, 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 in that day, in that day, they didn't see kids as, the, as optional or as even an inconvenience. In the ancient world, in fact, in much of the majority world today, to be childless was considered a terrible thing. It was considered a curse. And this was, this was especially the case in ancient Israel. Okay, and let me just explain a little. We talked about talking about this a few weeks ago, but I'll explain it again, though. In the early chapters of ancient Israel's scriptures, childbirth and children, that is human sexuality, human reproduction, were celebrated. They were just lauded as the most, one of the most beautiful things that can, that can happen. Children were seen as a sign of God's favor and blessing. Not only that, but children were seen, listen to this, children were seen as the biggest way to make a difference in the world. They were the way that you were to leave a mark, a legacy, and pain in childbirth and the pain of childlessness were seen as a result of God's displeasure and disapproval of general human disobedience. Not necessarily a particular person, not necessarily a particular father or mother's disobedience, but the, dis- but the disobedience of a people group or of a humanity in general. See, many times in the first five books of the Bible, and what's called a Pentateuch, Especially in Deuteronomy, God promises his people that if they pursue justice and righteousness, if they align their lives with him, he will give them children. Quite simply, it was this. The more obedience, the more offspring. The more offspring, the more influence in the world. Do you hear that? that works? The more obedience, the more offspring, the more offspring, the more influence in the world. In fact, you can even, you may, that may, it may seem kind of like silly. That may seem somewhat pagan or same kind of like, what's the word, um, um, just like old school or antiquated or even barbaric, but it's not actually. Go check out the, 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 the finance, go, go read the news sometime about the finances. Go, look, go check out Europe's economic situation. Do you know what their biggest economic problem is? They're not able to replace their workforce. Do you know why? Because they're not having kids. They're having kids. See, it's true today, just as it was then, that actually the greatest thing, the way to make an impact in the world is the, the person who dies with the most kids wins. And it's a very simple idea, but that's how it was. The more offspring, I'm sorry, the more obedience said God, the more, the, more, the, the more offspring, the more offspring, the more influence in the world. And so this notion of obedience-offspring connection is a, it's, 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 it's simply one example of a larger overarching idea found in the Old Testament Basically, this idea that says it's what's called the character-consequence connection. Quite simply, good character will lead to good consequences. Now, I mention all of this because so that you understand, at the beginning of Luke's gospel, you've got two people who've given their lives to good character. They've given their lives to obedience. And what? What do they have to show for it? Nothing. Nothing. They've got no future. All their fidelity has only gotten them Infertility. There's a, there's a futility, if you will. A sense of, are you kidding me? After all I've done, after all we've done. Again, we may pity them. Wow, that's so not fair. What, what a shame. Or may we even find them pathetic. Like, I mean, come on. Wow, what do you expect? Don't you know that nice guys finish last? I mean, everybody knows this. This whole notion of character consequence ideas, this whole notion of 
of obedience leads to offspring, leads to influence. That's all just, just religious pie in the sky. It's opiate for the masses. So this is important. Let me defend the Old Testament here just a little bit. This notion of character, consequence, connection, this notion of obedience leading to offspring, leading to influence, is not primarily for, it's not a promise made to individuals. It's a promise made to, to generations. It's a promise made to a people as a whole that if you obey together, it will lead to offspring, which will lead to influence. God will bless you as a people. And that's what's so key to understanding the, the Luke chapter 1. It's this idea that actually Zechariah and Elizabeth are all alone. That in their generation, as I mentioned already, the priests, I'm sorry, the princes, they're all corrupt. Herod the Great, just wow. The priests, all corrupt. And what about the people, the actual, the, the common, the peasants? What about just the, the common, Israel, six, Joe Sixpack Israelite? What about him? Well, we learn in that day, in that time, that Israel was at its most unfaithful. You look around, you think, you know, the church is full of hypocrites. It was worse in Jesus' day. It was worse. In fact, later on in Luke, I think it's Luke 8 or 9, Jesus will say, he will look at the crowds and say, oh, faithless and perverse generation. How long shall I put up with you? So Zechariah and Elizabeth are living in a time when the people of God have sold out. They're done. They've walked away. And what's so amazing is, is, in this, is, is, to, see, is, to, is to ask the question, what's wrong with Zechariah and Elizabeth? Why is it that they have stayed on this trajectory all alone why would they do something like that? You see, it's sort of like, it's, those of you, you know, junior high and high school kids, I don't know, maybe in college too, you, you know you have these things where are called group projects? You know what group projects are, right? In fact, even the way I was driving here in the way, and I, was like, I wanted to confirm this, I asked my daughter Lydia, I said, uh, I said, do you like group projects? And I was kind of impressed. She said, well, it depends. I said, well, what does it depend on? Well, it depends on who else is in the group, Right? And he said, if, got a good, if I can pick my group, if we have a good group, we can do it together, and we can just kill it. Which is so often we get assigned the group members. And everyone else in my group is just like, I don't care. Stupid. And she said, I end up doing all the work. And so often, even that's not enough, and we get a grade. And if it's a good grade, then they all get the same grade I do. Or we get a bad grade, and I suffer because of them. That's exactly how the situation of Elizabeth and Zechariah. It was a group project. God was looking at his people collectively and saying, are you going to follow me? Are you going to be faithful to me? He looked at the princes. He looked at the priests and the people and said, are you going to be my people different from the world? A group project. And everyone was just like, forget it, and went, went and picked their nose and did their own thing. And there's Zechariah and Elizabeth all alone. So was it worth it? And wasn't it time, wasn't it time, wasn't it way past time for Zechariah and Elizabeth just to give up? <coughs> to give up and give in, right? To give up and give in. You know, so much wrongdoing, so much giving in is rooted in that just giving up. We give in because we've given up. And why do we give up? Because we just can't figure out 
You can't figure life out. It all just seems so chaotic, so messy, so confusing. It just makes no sense. And one day we just say, you know what? Forget it. It just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. And that's what makes this couple so, so just peculiar, so strange. What's wrong with Zechariah and Elizabeth? Why, why, don't they, why don't they just give up? Why don't they give in? Why don't they join everybody else? And here's why I want you to hear this morning. This is the most important thing I want you to hear this morning. Zechariah and Elizabeth were utterly convinced that God, that God has game-changing actions in history. And he is a God who, when he takes actions, everything changes. See, for Zechariah and Elizabeth, rather than try to figure out their lives, rather than try to second-guess their past or stress out about their future, they were persuaded that there was an eternal, timeless creator and that he had acted in the past in these permanent, game-changing ways, and that he had promised that he would do so again in the future. And they didn't know exactly when or how. It just actually didn't really matter that much. They would just go on trying. I don't know about you, but so much of my life I spend in the past or the future. I spend it in the past, and they're trying to figure out my life, second-guessing my past. Oh, if I had only... Oh, oh. Or I think about the future. I'm stressing out about the future. Second-guessing the past. Stressing out about the future. And here's this couple, this, this couple, elderly couple who has somehow been able to master that, to live in the present. To live trying, refusing to give up, refusing to give in. It's an amazing thought to think about how just, just unique this couple is because they were convinced that they were in an epic. It wasn't just this little episode. And they may not see, they, they, they may, like, like, the, 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 like as mentioned, the author of Hebrews, right? You, you, they, these are persons, these are saints who, they, did never, they never actually received the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. It's an amazing thing to think about. And so verse 6 describes both of them as righteous before the Lord. See this righteousness. Again, it's an aligning of oneself with God's past and future actions in history. This righteousness, let me say it again, it's an aligning oneself with God's decisive, once and for all, past and future actions in history. They're like, Zechariah and Elizabeth are like, you know what? He's going to win. There you go. He is capable to perform these game-changing actions, so I'm just going to continue right down that path. Uh, this is three or four years ago. I was a young married couple that came to faith through my ministry, and um, I'll never forget what he said. He said, uh, he asked me, he says, you're saying that following Jesus means abandoning my own agenda and making God's agenda mine because through Jesus, God's going to get his way in the world anyway, right? I said, yeah, that's, you, you got it. He goes, well, isn't that kind of a no-brainer? Isn't that kind of a no-brainer? If God's going to win anyway, if Jesus is reigning on the throne, why, why wouldn't I? And he said, I'm in. And right then and there, he prayed, and he accepted Christ in his life. It was beautiful, beautiful. I mean, that, that couple was just, I can't tell you the situation they came from. It was unbelievably disastrous. Um, just um, just that you, you look at the situation, you think, that couple will never make it. They'll never make it. So, Luke chapter 1 presents us with this question. Is righteousness worth it? Is doing the right thing worth it? 
And it all hinges on this idea that is there a God whose actions are game-changing? Because there's not. I don't think it is. I'm in the wrong line of work. And all of our righteousness, all of our faithfulness is for naught. But if there is a God whose actions in history are game-changing, it absolutely is, and it makes all the sense in the world. It is a no-brainer. See, so the, in other words, see it this way. Though all seems pointless, Zechariah and Elizabeth were persuaded that they worship a game-changing God. And what's so amazing in this particular story, to, to, to Zechariah's astonishment, even to his unbelief, his disbelief, Zechariah learns that through them, through this old elderly couple, all that the world would see is washed up, used up, over for them with no future. Through them, God is going to send someone to prepare God's people for his eminent return. Look at verse 17. Look at how he describes it there. The angel says to John the Baptist, he will go on, this is he, that is John the Baptist, will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. To make, a re- to make ready a, a people prepared for the Lord. See, the disobedient, they've given up. They've given up. They're over. They've given up, and, and they've, they've given in. They've given in. They're disobedient. Like, why bother? Because they're despairing. And they're, but they think that's the right thing. Ah, all is lost. So the wisest thing to do is just to give up, to give in. But in truth, the secret wisdom of the scriptures, the secret wisdom that tells of a God who, who acts in ways that are game-changing, that is a wisdom that says, do not give up. It's the wisdom of the righteous. It's the wisdom of those who are like, yeah, I get it. everyone else has given in. But I am not. Because I worship a God. I worship one who will come and change the world right side up. So according to the angel, John would say, to, I'm sorry, according to the angel, John would say to the Israel of, of Jesus' day, of John's day, he would say to those to Israelites, who went to church, went to synagogue regularly, but actually had given up and given in. He would say to them, God is about to return and act in game-changing ways. Do you really think your disobedience is a good idea? Do you really think that it might be better to be righteous? Do you think it might be better to align yourself with God's agenda? Don't you think that would be a no-brainer? Wouldn't that be worth it? Wouldn't that be wise that's what John was going to do, and he did. So many responded to his preaching. It's amazing. You read John, and the guy's no nonsense. He calls a spade a spade. He calls sin, sin, and he calls people to repent. How did John address the people of his day? Imagine if I started my sermon by saying, good morning, you brood of vipers. How would you feel? Right? How'd that be a good PR move? Right? Hey, see y'all, brood of vipers. Have a great week. Brood of vipers, what does that even mean? He's talking about, in the ancient world, serpents were known as, 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 um, as deceptive. The, the, you, don't, you know, there's a sense of slyness to them. There's a sense of unpredictability. You can't really, there's, there's nothing to rely on. You don't know which way they're going to go. And so he says, you know, you just, he says, you Israelites, you can't rely on you. You come and go. You do whatever you want. In, in lips, you get live service to the things of God. But your hearts aren't in it. I can't rely on you. So he calls them brood of vipers. You're just, you're just all show. You're all fake. And what's amazing, he calls a spade a spade, and God uses it, and the people of God respond, because John is saying, God's coming back. He's coming 
back and are you going to align yourself with his ways or are you going to give up and give in? So with the birth of John the Baptist, we now see that Zechariah and Elizabeth, that they haven't been, we shouldn't pity them. They're not pitiful. They're not pathetic. Zechariah and Elizabeth are prudent. They are wise. They are shrewd. Why? Because they see, they behold each and every day a God who can do game-changing actions in history. In fact, not only would they, see, this is, what the, this is the beauty of the story, that those who are pitiable, who are pathetic by the end of the story, look at verses 24 and 25, they end up regarded as people of prominence. This is so awesome. Look at verse 24. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, and for five months remained in this conclusion. We have no idea why that's the case. Verse 25. But the, but the important part is this is what she says. She says, the Lord has done this for me. She said, in these days, he has shown his favor. He has shown everyone that we are favored. He has shown everyone that we were actually on the right path. And he has taken away my disgrace among the people. And understand, this wasn't just a cute sort of idea. Uh, um, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they knew their Bibles. They knew that, that, that when, when there was like an infertile couple, and then God miraculously does something, or there's suddenly this, this, this couple has a child, that wasn't some sort of, oh, that's a nice thing for them. It's good for you. They realized that this was momentous, that God was about to act in game-changing ways because they read their Bible. They had heard about Abraham and Sarah. They'd heard about Hannah. They'd heard about other women who were barren, and God uses them as this example of, see, see, of, see um, Elizabeth represents the few faithful whose lives seem to be futile seem to be so barren. And she knows this isn't some private affair, but that God is about to work in mighty ways and that she would give birth to one who would herald the coming of one who would change everything forever. So because of God's game-changing actions in history, when all seems pointless, when all seems when it seems barren, God's people are to persevere. They're to persevere. I don't know if you saw this. There's just this moment where an angel appears to, 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 uh, to um, Zechariah. And what's the first thing he says to him? Zechariah, your prayers have been answered. And it's like, oh, Zechariah, have you really been praying for a, ki a kid? You really? Zechariah was a man who prayed outrageously stupid prayers. Isn't that amazing? He believed in a God who could do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. What's your stupid prayer? Do you have one? You have an outrageously stupid prayer. Do you have a, are you a person who's willing to just go to God and say, God, I don't know what's best for me, but I would sure love to see this happen. And you can do it if you want to. So God's people persevere, they pray, and they prepare for his return. Are you preparing for God's return? Are you preparing for Jesus to come back? Are you doing that? See, Abraham, or Zechariah and Elizabeth, they understood that this child being born of an infertile um, a woman, that's Yahweh's calling card. He specializes in the barren 
He specializes in the, in the pointless and the futile. And that's what we're to do as the people of God, to not give up, to not give in. Even when everyone else, even when the princes and priests and the people around us are all corrupt, we look to Zechariah and Elizabeth because God, God sees and he favors them. He loves them. And here's the thing, gang. Here's the, here's, the, here's, the, here's the scandalous thing about the gospel, and I'll stop here. The scandalous thing about the gospel is that each and every one of us can walk out this door this morning and be righteous, just like Zechariah and Elizabeth. So all you got to do is say, you know what? I give up. I give up my own way. I give, my own, give up my own agenda. I give up my own wisdom. I'm refused. I'm just going to stop trying to figure out my own life. And I'm going to align myself with an agenda of the one who always gets his way. I'm going to align myself with the one who's the king of kings and lord of lords. I'm going to align myself with Jesus no matter what. And we're actually going to name the hard things in our lives. I'm going to go back into that hard thing. And I'm going to align myself to God's purposes. And come what may, it doesn't matter. I will wait for the Lord. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a beautiful story. It is so awesome about how these Advent stories are stories of elderly persons for whom it seems that they have no future. Persons who um, just, just have every reason to give up, every reason to laugh in cynicism, to laugh at a God who makes promises that seem so ridiculous. And Father, I pray that we would be a church, not only individually, but collectively as a church, that we would be seeking to love and bring justice and righteousness in this world, even if it means in our own generation we don't see any improvement whatsoever. Father, there are such pressing issues in our day, issues of racism, issues of injustice, other issues of the voiceless being slaughtered, of elderly being utterly forgotten. Father, there are so many issues of justice, and I pray that we as a church would be found faithful, that we would just be simply like Elizabeth and Zechariah in a culture, in a time when, when there's so much, so much of corruption, so much that is fake, so much that is counterfeit. Father, I pray that we would realign ourselves with you, a God whose every actions are unstoppable, whose every actions are permanent, whose every actions are life-giving. Oh God, please, would, we, would you do that? Would you so send your spirit that we might be renewed, that, that during this Advent season, that we would, instead of just growing in despair, discouragement, that we would hope. We would dare to hope because you are a God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. Father, hear our prayers, for we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen.